West Nile virus caused more than 55,000 reported cases of human disease and 2,600 deaths in the United States between 1999 and 2021. Despite the development and expansion of mosquito surveillance and control programs over the past two decades, a consistently high burden of disease is reported each year. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Carolyn Gould, a medical officer in the Division of Vector-Borne Diseases at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Gould has co-authored a perspective article about revisiting vaccination for West Nile virus. Dr. Gould, what are the primary public health approaches that are currently being used to prevent West Nile virus infections and disease? There have been many efforts to develop and expand community mosquito surveillance and control programs since West Nile was introduced into the United States in 1999. But despite this, there's still been a high burden of West Nile disease in various parts of the country each year. And one of the problems is the lack of predictability in the size and location of West Nile outbreaks and the high degree of geographic and temporal variation. For example, just recently in 2021, Maricopa County, Arizona, experienced more than 1,400 disease cases and 100 deaths reported in the county. By contrast, only a handful of cases were identified the previous year. So these outbreaks are really hard to predict. And this variability means that vector management programs often have to be reactive. And while they're effective at reducing the size of outbreaks, once they've been recognized, they're usually implemented after many cases have already occurred and are very expensive for mosquito control districts. The other major prevention strategy is using personal protective measures to avoid mosquito bites, but many studies have found that uptake of these measures is often quite poor. These are things like wearing long sleeves and long pants, which isn't necessarily desirable on a hot summer day, or using insect repellent, which many people don't like to do for various reasons, and avoiding being outside at dawn and dusk when mosquitoes are most active, During the summertime, people often like to be outside during these cooler parts of the day, so the uptake of these recommendations hasn't been very high, making them less effective. You write in your perspective article that although several veterinary vaccines have been licensed, West Nile virus vaccines for humans haven't progressed beyond phase one or two clinical trials. So what are the main barriers to developing and testing vaccine candidates? So in the traditional pathway to vaccine licensure, vaccines typically go through three phases of human clinical trials. So phase one clinical trials typically involve a small number of healthy adult volunteers and are designed to assess preliminary safety and immunogenicity of the vaccine candidate. Phase two trials involve larger numbers of participants, ideally in the vaccine target population, and further explore the effects of things like dose and schedule. And Previous West Nile vaccine candidates have been through phase one, and some of them have been through phase two trials. But phase three clinical trials are the critical trials to demonstrate safety and efficacy of the vaccine candidate in support of licensure. And these are ideally very large, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies in populations at high risk of disease with clinical endpoints, such as prevention of disease and death from infection. Designing a phase three clinical endpoint efficacy trial for West Nile vaccines is challenging because of the unpredictable and sporadic nature of disease outbreaks and changing epidemiology. So this makes it difficult to select the geographic location for the trial and have enough time to prepare before the first cases of West Nile disease are detected. So if the incidence rate is low in the selected area and we're vaccinating only a subset of the population, such as persons who are 50 years or older, it could take years to complete the trial to demonstrate clinical efficacy. 
And this has certainly been a deterrent in trying to design large clinical trials for West Nile vaccines. You talk in your article about other challenges related to West Nile virus vaccine development and say that they aren't unique to this condition and could be addressed with approaches similar to those used for other vaccines, including alternative licensing pathways using surrogate endpoints. So what endpoints would be relevant for a West Nile virus vaccine? Right. Well, we're in a better position now to pursue alternative pathways to licensure compared with when the early clinical trials of West Nile vaccine candidates were completed. And this is due in part to these alternative pathways being used for other more recent vaccines. We have four licensed flavivirus vaccines in the United States now, so we're not starting from scratch. There are, as you mentioned, several alternative pathways that could be reasonable options for West Nile development, such as use of surrogate endpoints, as well as passive immune transfer studies. And the most likely alternative for a West Nile vaccine would be to use a surrogate endpoint. Oftentimes, as I mentioned before, phase three clinical trials look at clinical endpoints, such as prevention of disease and death. In this case, we would use an immune response that is reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit. For example, approval of the Japanese encephalitis vaccine was done using an established immune correlative protection, which was a specific threshold or level of neutralizing antibody titers. Neutralizing antibodies are functional antibodies and the most reliable measure of protection for flavivirus infections. And since West Nile virus and Japanese encephalitis virus are very similar flaviviruses, establishment of a similar correlative protection for West Nile virus is promising. You also mentioned in your article options such as making vaccines available before licensure under an investigational new drug application using an expanded access mechanism or under an emergency use authorization. So how would vaccine rollout and assessment work in those sorts of cases? Under certain circumstances, vaccines can be made available before licensure through studies conducted under an investigational new drug or IND application or through IND expanded access mechanisms. And this was used, for example, during a shortage of yellow fever vaccine in the United States. Stamerol, which is a yellow fever vaccine that was licensed in Europe, was approved for use through this IND expanded access mechanism. And typically, this mechanism is used if the public need is greater than what can be provided in traditional trials, as long as human subjects' protections requirements are in place. An emergency use authorization, or EUA, would address a much larger public need as occurred during the COVID pandemic and is deployed when the benefit of getting that vaccine to the public quickly outweighs waiting for the traditional phase three trials. I think for West Nile vaccines, these mechanisms may be less applicable and the most likely alternative pathway that would be feasible would be use of the surrogate endpoint. And then I want to ask about vaccine safety. What potential adverse effects of these sorts of vaccines are you worried about? And are there approaches to vaccination that could minimize those risks? Yes, some of the West Nile virus vaccine candidates are live attenuated chimeric vaccines. The chimeric vaccines use flavivirus backbones and swap out genes for those of West Nile encoding particles that are recognized by the immune system. And as with all live attenuated vaccines, there's a greater risk of adverse events with the replicating virus in patients who are older or who have immunocompromising conditions. And since older populations would be the target for West Nile vaccines, there are concerns about safety in this group. However, no safety signals were identified in the early clinical trials of these vaccines, 
even in the older participants. But it's important to note that these early clinical trials involved relatively small numbers and are not designed to detect rare adverse events, so additional assessments of safety are still needed. But the benefit of live vaccines is that they tend to elicit more durable immunity than other types of vaccines and often require only a single dose, which is appealing from the perspective of uptake and reduced cost. Non-replicating inactivated or subunit vaccines have also undergone early clinical trials, and they might have a better safety profile, but they typically require multiple doses to induce a protective immune response. So there's a trade-off there because multiple doses could affect uptake cost and long-term effectiveness. For example, all four approved veterinary vaccines require a two-dose primary series and annual booster schedules. So this might not be ideal for a human vaccine, but we do need more safety data in the vaccine approval process. Finally, to carry that question about cost and uptake further, if a vaccine is authorized, what strategies could be used to address challenges related to cost and uptake? Sure. Well, one of the strategies would be to use a vaccine that has fewer doses required, and that would reduce the cost. And that has been demonstrated in some of the modeling studies for West Nile. So there have been several cost-effectiveness modeling studies for West Nile over the years. And these studies look at costs of vaccine programs in relation to the costs of disease, which might include things like healthcare costs or loss of productivity and income and quality of life. Previous modeling studies suggested that the cost of West Nile vaccination was not favorable, and that has also been one of the obstacles to further development. However, a recent analysis of a program targeting older persons in high-incidence geographic areas found that the cost estimates were much more reasonable. So one of the ways to potentially reduce cost of a West Nile vaccine program is to implement the program in targeted geographic areas, meaning areas that have had consistently elevated disease incidence rates over time. And we do have two decades worth of data to identify those areas. We also know that recent data from California found that West Nile hospitalization costs in that state were higher than previous estimates that were used in the models. So we think that the cost-effectiveness ratios of West Nile vaccine programs are probably more favorable than previous estimates demonstrated. In terms of individual costs of vaccination, a lot of factors go into pricing and cost for patients. It depends on the price point set by the manufacturer and the number of doses needed, for example. But whether or not a vaccine is covered by insurance depends in part on whether it's recommended by the ACIP for a particular population. So having a recommendation for a vaccine in a specific population, for example, persons over 50 years of age, would make it more likely that insurance would cover the cost of vaccination. Thank you, Dr. Gould.